The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this morning we looked at um, how non-harming, not causing harm, not intentionally causing harm, not wanting to cause harm, is at the core of the Buddha Dharma, Buddhism, the whole enterprise of Buddhism, and that one of the ways of cultivating a life of non-harming is a life of training in particular ethical approaches, guidelines, um, that these uh, precepts and skillful actions, that they're both trainings in which we develop ourselves in, but also there are ways of not causing harm. And um, as not causing harm, it's kind of self, you know, just, it's, it's pretty cool not to cause any harm. It's pretty good. <laughs> as trainings, uh, we have a tremendous capacity to develop our hearts and minds so that our hearts and minds can be strong, be have within them some really some of the wonderful qualities that uh, humans are capable of, have those qualities developed, compassion and kindness and mindfulness, concentration. It's possible to have the heart and mind move towards greater and greater peace and happiness and well-being and sense of freedom. And that the ethics, mindfulness, the trainings are all kind of work together uh, in a mutually supportive way. So that's kind of uh, a little bit basic Buddhism perhaps basic Buddhist philosophy or approach to life or the view of life, the view of what's possible. So what are some views, some point, points of views, viewpoints, or some philosophies of life that if held, lived by, undermine all that? Clearly kind of would, you know, interfere with or, or override or push aside this Buddhist view that I've described. Yes, wait for the mic. Well, I, I thought of three things. And one was, um, the first one was, if you don't believe that transformation is possible, um, I know people who hold that view that, that transformation is just not possible. Um, that they give a lot of credence to the acknowledging the basis aspects of, of human beings, but not much to the nobility of, being, of yeah. the human spirit. And the other one I thought of was um, if you don't really have a sort of respect for for the fact that your actions have consequences. It doesn't yeah. matter what you do, in other words. So why, right. why train? Why, exactly. you know, why bother not harming people when it doesn't really matter? Right, yeah. 
And then the third one that occurred to me was, um, if, you ha- if you don't have faith in any other ways of knowing except through the rational mind. Mm-hmm. So. And, then what, and how does that interfere? Well, in the third one, in the understanding and the arising of wisdom and insight, that in the way that we talk about that in Buddhism, that doesn't generally come from the rational mind, but from some you know, deeper place is what I was thinking. It could, it could well be, just that you didn't argue the, your point very well. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's rational understanding too, but, yeah. but I know people who... I, 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 I'm thinking of people that I know, because when you asked us to think about that, I thought of people yeah, yeah. that I know. Uh-huh. Some people are very, have very strong allegiance to their rational mind, and, uh-huh. and so, you know. I see. Inter- yeah, I think... Uh, so the rational mind can interfere certainly with a deeper stillness that allows us to see in a different way. Yes. Thank you, Don. You don't have to rush. <laughs> we could all. We could. We, we could all. The, the point of view, my country, right or wrong, my country, my tribe, my community, my family, whatever. Me. <laughs> well, yeah. not, not just me, but this, this, enti- this social entity that is much bigger than me. Right. Good. Um, competitiveness as a viewpoint can destroy everything we were talking about. Not only competitiveness to the extreme Wolf of Wall Street competitiveness, but even when I think about my own situation, wanting my school to be better than the next one, you know, I've got to watch it on myself. I'm doing this thing for the greater good, and I get competitive. So a competitive, competitive com- competition is an activity. What's the view that, uh, behind that? Oh, the, the view of competitiveness, I need to um, be better than the next one. I'm working for the greater good, and I'm doing a better job of it than the next person. I'm meditating and doing a better job than the next person. <laughs> Great. I was going to say something really similar to that, um, which was... The, the sense of myself as something separate that has to be defended, um, like the small, separate, solid self. Yeah. Identifying with myself as small, separate, or solid undermines all of that. that great. How does it undermine it? Um, it? It came from a when you asked the question. I had a feeling of yeah. like, oh, when I identify with myself as um, separate, it undermines those things. So it's a feel. So is it the feeling? Is that what you're asking? No, uh, and what, uh, uh, yeah, so what way does it undermine? Um, because it's like, I have, it's, it's similar to what has been mentioned. Yeah. I have to defend or um, compete for resources or protect or bolster, uh, keep away, you know, keep myself separate from something that could threaten the interests of this little Interesting. me universe. I, I, I agree. But here's something interesting that <clears throat> someone who is all about me and sep- I'm separate and I have to take care of myself yeah. could, maybe even rationally, 
understand <clears throat> uh, I'm better off if I support all these other people. Right, right. And, uh, I'm better off if I support these other people. I'm, it's all about me. And I want to get ahead. I want to be the first one. <clears throat> but the best way to do it is to really... I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's a little bit mutual here. So if I, if I help everybody else out, I'm going to get ahead because they'll support me. And but so, then that's not authentic. That's not an authentic, like, true embodiment of. But how does it undermine the whole approach to ethics we talked about? Because now I'm saying this guy's, this person's going to be really ethical because the person has logically figured out that he's going to get ahead by being really good. Indeed, it must be a special one. But he's going to live ethically. Wow, that pretty boy, is he ever ethical? Is this a debate that we're having? <laughs> <laughs> no, not a debate. Not a debate. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push the thinking. Yeah, I'm, just kidding, I'm, just I'm, I'm a little stuck. Anybody want to help? Yes? I'll give it a try. Um, if the person attempts this method of success and at some point sees that it's not working, then it would all fall apart because the motivation was for self-aggrandizement. Uh-huh. And if his tactics of seeming to be good and seeming to help other people uh, don't bear the kind of fruit that he wanted, probably he would ditch it. Mm. Okay. This fictional character. Good. Put a twist on it. I think that it could be a doorway to uh, more healthier ethical motivation. Or start off selfish, but if you if you work on it in the right way, that then it can be can move to something nice. Okay. Um, folks who don't believe that anything can change outcomes. Ah. Oh. So, Nothing will change. It's always going to be the same. It's, and, and kind of um, a little bit differently than was phrased earlier, it's not just that we can't change, but like I can't do anything about insert in the blank mm-hmm. here. I can't do anything about it. Yeah, so some kind of sense that... Um, so so I'm gonna, I, I can't do anything about my drinking. Yeah, I I, that's what I do, I drink. Yeah, people are all blank. I'm just a mean son of a the Buddha, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, I just you know, I cuss. That's what I do, and if that offends people, hurts people, well, it's, you know, I can't help it. That's just the way I am. Yeah. Well, if we want to put it in. Uh, Buddhist framework or phrase that could be called doubt. So say it again. If we want to put it in the yeah. phrasing of, or framework of the hindrances, that could be called doubt. doubt. Although perhaps some people, it, it may seem a little more certain than doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jan here had a raised her hand. It was just a very short PS that was actually from Sasha, but she didn't have the microphone. When Don was talking about uh, people believing that things can't change, what you said was pollution, right? Is that what I heard? So also not just um, the idea that we as individuals can't change, but the idea that there are things in the world that that are just overwhelming and we're powerless to change. And so leading to give give up. So might as well just not do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, don't know. <laughs> I think that 
comes under the category of willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also that our worldly manifestation is a reflection of our internal landscape. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, collective. So internal manifestation reflects our internal landscape. So I have not another point of view, but a, a, a question arose in two things I heard there. One is um, denying the capacity for change. How do we reconcile as, as, a, as undermining the way of the Dharma? Um, how do we reconcile that with uh, suffering defined as wishing things were other than they are? I guess I'm not following what the connection is. Can you explain a little well, more? Well, um, de- denying the capacity for change or um, transformation is wanting things to be different than they are. Oh. And that's a definition of suffering. It can be a definition of suffering, but uh, the whole Buddhist enterprise is built on wanting to change things, change certain things. You know, Buddhism is not about just suffering better. <laughs> you know, accepting be, things as they are. Just be, accept things as they are. Be really present and be really mindful. We want to wear a mindfulness tradition. Let's really be mindful. You know, and so we can suffer just better. You know, so definitely Buddhism is definitely built into it is a desire for something to change. And what's going to change is our suffering. We want to move towards better ourselves. At the same time, the desire for things to be different than they are can be a source of tremendous suffering, as we know. But but without that desire to to for something like that, uh, you, you probably you live a life that be looked from all clinical points of view as a, a depressed life. <laughs> so that means that means very interesting what you said because because you do find some Buddhists say that um, desire is the problem, and so you should have no desire. And therefore, that undermines a lot of Buddhist practice because, you know, why, why would you want to be more ethical and train to be more ethical if desire is the problem? And so that would undermine the whole enterprise. Yes? I wanted to follow up with your, the last question. Um, you know, when I think of how will it undermine the ethical view or the ethical approach, I'm not sure, the training, to either believe that you must accept everything as it is or wanting things to be other than they are. Is Is the wisdom in understanding the difference, like the AA prayer? May I, you know, change what can change? I'm I'm wondering, you know, accept what I cannot change and have the wisdom always to know the difference. Yeah, I think it's really crucial. That's the key then. <clears throat> it's the key. Because I struggle with that, accepting things as they are versus, you know, I'm not big on that. I'm like, how can I fix it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's certainly a wise life has to include that because we can't change everything. But see, in Buddhism, uh, the the core aspect of Buddhism is about what we can change. And we can change ourselves. We can change our, uh, the choices we make about how we live our lives and how we speak, what we do, and, what, and the behavior of our mind. And we have some choice about that and the choices we make 
uh, make all the difference. And, and so that, you might not be able to change what's out there or things of the world, but... but um, yes, I can. Oh, you can, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know where I'm coming from. I'm starting things. And... To just change my mind is just a beginning point. But even, even, even what you... I mean, you, you've, you've, I mean you're, you're an entrepreneur, right? You've created this great school and uh, you have faith that things can change and do things, but at the same time, inherent that built into your system of working with kids who have dyslexia is you're accepting them as being dyslexics. You're not going to say, come to my school, and by the time you leave, you won't be dyslexic. And so you want to love them for who they are and give them skills that they can manage in our society. Because, because, uh, because in our society, there's not... You know, you need skills that dyslexics don't come naturally. 10,000, 20,000 years ago, dyslexics, they, they did great. They, they, did, they were great hunters and gatherers and in the wild. And, and we needed people like that. But unfortunately, they were kind of temporarily out of style. <laughs> Their style will come back. Well... I identified a lot with those last two uh, questions and comments. And uh, being a language hound, a kind of linguist myself, I, I naturally thought in terms of different tenses of past, present, and future. And one of the things that occurred to me in this notion of um, dukkha or suffering being uh, wishing things were otherwise is that maybe it would help to parse it into different times, that dukkha is... Uh, wishing the past were different than it is, which we obviously can't change, uh-huh. rejecting the present as it is, and the as it isness is it, we're stuck with it yeah. or we've received it happily, as the case may be. Right. But within the present, there are options for moving toward a future. That's what you were emphasizing in actually changing things. Yeah. So maybe the, the dukkha is from pushing against the things we can't do anything about, but the possibility for sukha is from opening to the pr- capacity in the present for moving toward a future that's great, better great. for everybody. And, and to have the wisdom to know what, what, where you can move in an effective way. Great. So that's a good. So good. So, um, so what I wanted to get across this discussion is that um, there are the views that we have are consequential. That the fact that someone has a belief system, a belief is not an incidental idle thing, you know, that, that has no importance in people's lives, you know. But actually, it under, um, under, it lays under uh, uh, much of people's behavior, what they do and they don't do, uh, the perspective they use to see their life and see the situation. And um, so, we could almost say that the views that we carry, the views that we have, have an ethical component. Ethical in the sense that they can either support an ethical life or undermine an ethical life. So, uh, so views become very important in Buddhism, and to be uh, to start looking and looking at the stories we live our lives, base our lives on the opinions we base our life on, the philosophies, and some of the some of the most deepest and pervasive philosophies that we base our life on um, are tend to be somewhat subconscious. We don't really even know they're there. They're sometimes they've been operating, and like I've told maybe too many times now, the. Uh, you know, I was raised in a kind of Norwegian-American culture 
where individualism, Norwegians also have a very strong streak of individualism, like in America. And, um, and I didn't see, uh, it wasn't until I lived in Japan that I, that I was finally able to see that I had this individualistic worldview. I just thought it was how the universe was built. It was like, this is how it is, you know, just, I mean, never, I didn't even think about it, just that's, you know, just, I didn't, I didn't even know I had it. It just, it was just, that's just the obvious thing, right? And, um, and then when I raised my, my older son, I could see in the choices I was making when he was like two years old, like I was pushing him in the direction of that same individualism, you know, because it was kind of built into me how I saw the world and then I could see I was making choices and encouraging that side. And um, so there's an example of, you know, it can be so invisible, the attitudes we have, the beliefs we have. And... Um, um, but the fact that, you know, so we're all philosophers. <laughs> you know, even if you've never taken a philosophy class, we're all philosophers. We all have a view, an opinion, a point of, you know, a story that we're using that, to understand how we get through. And so because they affect our behavior and their choices, they have an ethical uh, component. Because if we choose to behave in ways that cause harm, and it stems somehow or supported by that view, the view has a second ethical component. Or if we have a view that supports the opposite, uh, then you know that also has an ethical component. So um, this year, the, the the framework for this approach on ethics, mindfulness and ethics, this year has been the ten skillful actions. And the ten skillful actions, um, I reviewed this this morning, but I'll go. It's not to kill, not to take what's not given, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to um, uh, um, have div- div- divisive speech, not to have harsh speech, not to have gossip, and then not to have uh, gre- greed or uh, avarice, and not to have um, ill will, hostility. And then the last one is not to have wrong view. And some people like to say that this list, this particular list, um, goes from um, what's more gross, uh, I guess killing is pretty gross, but more gross, more crude, more uh, larger behavior to more and more subtle behavior. Because, you know, killing is usually something you do with your, you, know, you have to kind of do it much more actively. Uh, it's easier to, you know, to gossip, you know, it's maybe it's pay more attention or it's sometimes, because speech sometimes is more deeply, deep source, I don't know, it's harder to deal with sometimes. And then uh, ill will and greed have to do with inner qualities, inner motivations. No one needs, needs to see it. And it's more subtle. And that this, uh, our views are even more subtle. And as practice unfolds and, and mature in this training of Buddhism, slowly over time, we start working our way towards what's, more and more, what's considered subtle or more quiet or more the underlying things. And the, and the views, the philosophies, the stories that we base our life on are considered sometimes the the more subtle place. So after after you go through all ten in this particular training, you get to this last one. That's one theory about why it's the tenth. Um, And and there's a variety of, in the suttas, there's a variety of places of of what's considered wrong view and right view. Uh, One form of wrong view is to believe that there's no consequences to our actions. If you've, because then why would you do anything? Why would you behave differently? So, um, 
and you know, there's all kinds of variations of that, I suppose, like nothing matters. Um, another form of right view, of wrong view, it's sometimes talked about, maybe not exactly, it's not, in the sutta it's called the wrong view per se, but um, an unwise way to think is to understand your life, what goes on to you, from the perspective of, uh, the, of um, the um, individual separate self, like me, myself, and mine. What's, what's in it for me? You know, who am I in this? Who am I going to become? How are people going to see me? Uh, you know, just always referring back to conceit of, of me, myself, and I. And it can seem very, almost impossible to conceive of in any other way of thinking about life because, I, you know, I'm here, you know, what am I supposed to do? Disappear? And uh, of course I'm here. I'm supposed to take care of this and me here. The Buddha offers uh, a different view and this, 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 this different view is sometimes considered the defini- one of the definitions of right view, the useful view. And that is, um, so the f- one, one, one right view is that actions have consequences. A variation of that is that, um, that uh, the, what's called the four noble truths. There is suffering and that there is certain action that we do that causes that suffering. And that action is our craving, our compuls- compulsive desire. And there's things that we can do, the Eightfold Path, that can lead to the cessation of that. So you need to have the first view that the actions have consequences to really get behind the second kind of right view, which is seeing things through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. So what the Buddha suggested is instead of seeing things through the lens of me, myself, and mine, uh, he's not saying it's necessarily wrong, but it's not, not so wise to do that. Uh, look through the lens of is there any uh, um, tension or dis- uneasiness or suffering in this situation? And if there is, then look more deeply and see if there's any compulsion, anything you're holding on to or clinging to. And, th- and that's a path to freedom, path to peace. Me, myself, and mine is not a path to peace because it's kind of a dead-end road. It kind of just causes more problems. It creates more of the same as you go along. So there's a variety of these views. So there's, there's what's called wrong view and right view because views have consequences. And, um, and so in this 10 skillful actions, there's wrong view and right view. So what I thought I would do is I'd read to you um, the, the definition or the expla- in, this, in, the, in the explanation of the 10 skillful actions, how the text describes uh, this last one, the wrong view. And... Um, and I don't really understand it, <laughs> what it says. So, um, but I'll try to explain what I can make sense of it. And, uh, and then we'll, um, maybe you'll explain it to me. Um, here. So a person has a wrong view as follows. There is nothing given nothing offered, nothing sacrificed, no fruit or result of good and bad actions, no this world, no other world, no mother, no father, no beings who were reborn spontaneously, no good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have themselves realized by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. I know it's a mouthful. To follow that. Read it again. Yeah. And then tell us where it's from. 
Okay, this, the, right, this version is from um, uh, the middle length of course, number 41. Okay, or one has wrong view as follows. There is nothing given. Well, actually, I'm going to explain it a little bit, what I do know of it. So let's go. Um, um, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. So nothing given, nothing offered. Um, uh, Indian culture is uh, hugely important, this idea of generosity, of giving. Because giving it has, creates a lot of merit. And, uh, and Buddhist monks and nuns walk around being what's called a field of merit. And if you give to them food and their, their requisites, you get a lot of merit. Now, you know, that can be abused and becomes this bizarre merit economy, you know, and that uh, I don't think has much wisdom to it. But um, in, the, 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 in, the, in these early texts, the one place where the Buddha defines what merit is, he defines it as happiness. And so I think what the, I'd like to understand this, that, uh, we, uh, that ge- uh, generosity is a, is a source of happiness, a source of well-being. The generosity is a really good thing to do. That, um, and if you don't believe that generosity is a really healthy, good thing to do, that undermines one of the primary ways in which we can open the heart, develop the heart, and create really good uh, relationships with the world around us, with people around us. And so it undermines ethics. It undermines the, the empathy, the connectedness, the, the, one of the primary ethical movements in Buddhism, generosity. So wrong view is not to be generous, that there's nothing given, nothing really counts to be given, nothing really, you know. That's what, that's kind of, um, there's no fruit or result of good and bad actions. That's some of you mentioned. If you no longer believe that actions have consequences, then you, what, why would you do anything? And here it's a little bit more refined. Not only then no consequences, but you'd be able to distinguish between those consequences which are deleterious and those consequences, consequences which are beneficial. So, so you believe that some con- that there are consequences make a difference, and you can and uh, you can choose which consequence, which which actions to do. Actions have consequences. You can choose what actions to do, and uh, you can choose those actions which are beneficial. Without that view, you're in trouble. Um, there is no this world, no other world. Um, I think this refers to the idea, it either refers to the idea, other world either refers to the idea of rebirth, I think that's generally what it is in ancient India, that there's a next, next world. We say that, you know, the person came, went to the other world, um, it's the next place you go when you die. Or it could mean that it means heavenly realms, whereas uh, Buddhists believe in hell, hells and heavens, you can get reborn there, at least in the old days they did. And, uh, and for some people they saw that um, by believing what, that's, that you get reborn somewhere, um, and, the, and where you get reborn depends on your actions this lifetime, that then you're motivated to live a more ethical life. And if you don't believe in rebirth, then that is not a mo- motivating factor. So maybe that's why this is wrong view. Then, um, no mother, no father. The, um, I don't know what that's, what that's about. Except that um, if you, uh, I, there are India, I don't know how prevalent this is in India, but there are renunciant traditions in India, these wandering ascetics, who have severed their connection to their community, to their family, to the community in a very radical way. 
and will have nothing to do with it ever again. And so maybe say there's no mother, no fathers, like there's no, there's no relatives, no connectedness, there's no uh, community, there's, you know, just radically cut off from it. And, um, and so maybe it refers to something like that. And so there's no, no community, there's no connectedness, there's no field of relatedness that we're operating in. And it becomes, you know, then maybe it's just selfish, it's me, so, so separate. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talk about Buddhist monastics uh, being renunciants, you know, giving up so much, being without a, leaving home. But there are rules that the monastics, for example, one rule is that if a monastic uh, has to, they have to spend three months a year, uh, uh, three months a year on the rains retreat, kind of basically rooted in one place, they're not allowed to leave that place for, um, for those three months and be on a retreat, kind of, uh, unless uh, their parents are sick. Then they can go and take care of their parents. So this idea that the relatedness is important. So, so that's one theory I have, why, why the, the belief that there are no mother and no father, I don't know exactly what it means, who believed that, but, and why they would, but that was my best guess to try to explain it. Um, and no, and no responsibility. Yeah, no responsibility. No connectedness. No. No guiding, no guiding principles from your parents, or yeah. Um, then no beings who are reborn spontaneously. Uh, what I understand this to mean is that um, I think the only people, only beings that are born spontaneously in the old world, is um, is um, or the primary one. Are in, in the gods, you get uh, if you uh, you know we have to go through this laborious process of you know being pregnant and gestation and then birth, but uh, if you're lucky enough to get reborn as a god, you know you just get boom you know you, you just pop up you just appear up there, <laughs> and you don't appear you don't have to go through childhood and teenagehood you just like you're just you know a radiant young be- being you know and it's just all happily ever after for a few millennia. Um, the thing about Buddhist hell heavens, you know, is that you don't. It's not forever, so you might get. If you're lucky, you might get a few million years even up there, having a good time. But then, it's sooner or later, the karma wears out, and then you come back. You got get to do it again. It's Groundhog Day over again. Um, and then, the last one: no good and virtuous recluses and brahmins who have themselves realized by direct knowledge. So here, um, uh, there are no wise people, I like to think of it this way. There are no examples of people who have uh, trodden the path, who are more mature, who've understood something and seen something, um, who've realized something for themselves. That can be a guide for us, that can be support for us, that can be an example for us, um, that we want to hold ourselves accountable to, that we want to get advice from. Um, um, so without believing that there is people who have walked the path that are more and more mature, it's, uh, that undermines the desire to practice, undermines the motivation or the possibility. It just seems too daunting or too difficult or something. So this is a list you know, from ancient India that seemingly was relevant for them back there. And as I said, I don't quite understand what it means, and I just tried my best to give some explanation for it. But the the important principle is that uh, is that our our views are consequential, 
and there are views that we can hold that can undermine um, the path of practice, undermine living ethically, and undermine a life dedicated to non-harming and, and uh, even better than non-harming, benefiting the world. And um, so the views that undermine it and views that support it. And um, so any comments about that so far before we do the next thing around this? Yeah. The mic is... Well, well, I noticed that what you read seemed to be all about the wrong view. Yes, it goes on and talks about the right view. Oh, okay. But it's just the opposite of those. It's just, the, yeah, the anecdotes, so to so speak. Re, you want me to read that too? I, yeah, that would be helpful. To, to, to bring it into balance. So the last three of the ten skillful actions are, um, are uh, have to do with mental conduct. So I'm going to read all three. And how are the three kinds of mental conduct in accordance with the Dharma? Here, someone is not covetous. One does not covet the wealth and property of others. Thus, oh, may what belongs to another be mine. That person's mind is without ill will and the person has intentions free from hate as follows. May these these beings be free from enmity, affliction and anxiety. May they live happily. The person has a right view, undistorted vision as follows. There is what is given and what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is fruit, and the result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously. There are good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have themselves realized by direct knowledge. recall hearing somewhere that our parents pay a huge karmic debt to bring us into the world and that we carry them on our shoulders. All this is coming to mind. Uh, I don't remember the exact teaching, but that we... You mean Buddhism? Yeah, and that we... um, or to care for them. We have a responsibility yeah, to care think, for I think, them. I think a lot of cultures have that belief that, that uh, the, the people who brought us into life and then cared for us through our childhood, that we owe them a debt for all their, all their hard work. And uh, some people don't realize how much they did for us until they have kids themselves. Really? My parents did that? <laughs> I had no idea. And... Uh, so some people call that a debt and so feel that. And so. Yeah, it's just wondering because of the mention of no father, no mother. So no responsibility, no, no debt. No, 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 no debt or no response to them. I'm sorry, I'm not clear about yeah, what yeah. I recall of yeah, the I don't, It could well be a Buddhist teaching somewhere. Uh, 
I think it's a pretty common idea that, that we have debt to our parents. Whether it's a useful idea, I don't know. Caring for them is good, but whether we have a debt, it's a little bit oppressive. Will you ever pay it back? Not <laughs> yeah. Uh, see if I can rephrase it, but the the element that there are people who are uh, can be born spontaneously as gods. F- as gods, fully re- realized gods. Doesn't that get into a little bit of a realm of kind of hocus pocus or? I mean, how how do you just trying to reconcile that with? I've never heard that element in any of the other teachings. This idea, you especially if you come here to hear, listen to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of leave that kind of stuff out, but I know. So I'm I was so I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear it and trying. It almost seems out of context. Well, it's, in the, it's, it's out of our context, but it's not out of context maybe for people in ancient India. It's like if you were, you know, if you were an ancient Greek, it wouldn't be out of context to talk about Zeus and Poseidon and things like that. And, and so, so for them, the people, they believe those things. And, you know, and as you know, I, mean, I think you know that um, when you're raised, the time you're born and raised in a, in a culture, the cultural beliefs get so deeply embedded they become obviously true. It's like this individualism I talked about earlier, right? I mean, I mean, I, I mean it wasn't a, I didn't believe in individualism. I, I didn't even know there was such a thing. I just did my thing. And uh, because it was just it was so, so, so deeply embedded I didn't even think about it. It was just embedded in my way I thought. And um, so believing in Zeus, you know, if you grew up in a situation where there's, everyone believes in Zeus and everything's talked about in terms of Zeus and, and everything's explained in terms of Zeus and Zeus is doing this and that and lightning and thunder and Zeus and this and that. And, uh, you grew up as a kid from, from, you know, as you learn your language even, you, you learn all about Zeus. It's, you, can't even, you don't even know how to use your language or how to think or how to conceive without Zeus because it's so deeply embedded, integrated into it. And so it's just there. It's just obviously there for those people. It's not a question of a belief. It just is. And uh, and then so and then you know people certainly have wonderful visions of gods and devas and angels and all kinds of you know and they have angelic music and they hear and so there's all kinds of things that so-called experiences people are having. That then are in, are in, interpreted as being as, as belonging to heavenly realms. So it's not it's not a far fetched thing that people would believe this. And uh, and why it's important not to see this as a wrong view, you know, to, why it's important to believe in this, I don't know. Maybe it's important because if you don't believe, because it's a source of inspiration, it's a source of possibility. It's it should. generally the, the Buddhist view of the of becoming a god is you have to be very very ethical. You have to be, live a very good life to be, to end up as a god. So it becomes one of the motivations to live an ethical good life is because you believe it's possible to have this wonderful reward afterwards. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. As I said, I don't really know, understand this, right? I just thought it would be interesting to share the, tradition, the traditional view. Yes, Amy? Can you, can you, the, 
Yeah. Um, so the three characteristics, which are you know, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, and satisfactoriness, not self, like that's mm, proposed as a you know the characteristics of what reality actually is. So how come that's not part of the description of right view and the opposite, which is you know believing that things are permanent when they're not, you know, the belief in the permanency of things, that things will give us total satisfaction, the belief in us. It's a good question. Uh, it's especially a good question in the context of how uh, uh, modern Theravadan teachings are taught, like in Thailand, Burma, even here in the modern Vipassana world, where the three characteristics are often taught center stage, emphasized a lot, and so as a view almost. As I read these ancient texts, the teachings of the Buddha, um, I don't see that uh, impermanence and these three characteristics are taught as a, as a doorway into the Dharma, the way we teach it in the West, like everyone. But rather, they're meant to be deep insights that come with practice, you know, deep wisdom at some point that they operate to that level. And, um, and for ordinary life, and, that's, and this right view, I think, <clears throat> is... Um, uh, the, the three characteristics don't necessarily give you a view, a philosophy of life, because you can have, you can see that things are suffering, you can see that things are impermanent, you can see that maybe even it's not self. Uh, but uh, based on that insight, you can uh, build a wrong view from it. So, for example, people who might see everything as suffering, and their view based on that is, it's hopeless, I give up. So I, I think that maybe they don't, maybe that's why the, the, the three characteristics aren't, they're not really a view, but how we hold them, the, the, how we contextualize them in a view is important. And so we have to look at the view that holds them. So, right view, wrong view that there are views that we hold that undermine our ethical training, training in being a good person, training in moving towards um, behavior which brings benefit to everyone, brings peace, and there's views that support that. So I thought very briefly it'd be nice for each of you to explore this for yourself with someone um, and to have the question, it, it could be a, a distant past, you know, when you were almost like a different person. It doesn't count anymore that you had these views. Um, uh, wh- what are uh, some of the views that you have had over your lifetime that have, been, that have undermined you? And what are some of the views you've come to that now that's really feel that support you? Now, this is not like you have to tell the deepest, darkest true confession. You can, this can be like a light thing. You, know, you, can, you don't have to be the wisest, deepest person. Just whatever you feel comfortable sharing with someone, that's, that's what you can talk about. And, um, and you can almost be like, once upon a time when I was, you know, long ago, I had this view, and now I don't have that view anymore. So remember, you don't have to say whatever, anything you're not comfortable talking about. But it might be interesting to, uh, uh, to have this conversation, the reason why it might be useful, I think it's a good uh, 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 reflection 
to use regularly in your life to look and consider what are my views and is this view that I'm approaching this by is, it, is this a useful view is this supporting it is this helping me train better and move forward better and opening the path for me or is it closing the path for me and narrowing my options and, and uh, to have that reflection I think is a good thing to do so having that little reflection here as an exercise might kind of warm up, warm up that muscle and give you a sense of how you might do this so hopefully you're game for this so um, the idea would be to uh, 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 um, uh, join with one other person. And uh, the way to do this is to um, take about um, four minutes each. So four minutes, one person has a monologue or just talks about it. And then the, I'll ring a bell, I'll pause, and then I'll ring the bell. You know, the other person does it for four minutes or so. And the reason for the to do it alone without an ordinary conversation is so that you can uh, begin kind of listening to yourself and stretching yourself and maybe some of the obvious things come to mind first. But then after a while, um, you know, you've said the obvious and then you find yourself surprised by what you say, what comes up because you're, you're, you're staying on, on folk. Um, actually, I, I'd like to suggest a different process. I mean, same, same question, but I'd like to uh, suggest a different process. I think this is, does this does this a little more effectively. It's called an exercise called it's called the re, um, repeating uh, question. So, uh, repeating question. So the way it works is that I'll, I'll I'll talk you through it. But how it works is that one of you will be the questioner first, and the other person who answers. The person who asks the question, the first go around, will say, "What views have you had that have undermined you?" What views have undermined you? It's very simple like that. And, um, and when you answer, don't answer with a long story. You don't have to explain why you had this view. But just offer, the, just offer enough explanation for the view so you and the person understands what it is. It can be relatively brief. One of the important parts of this repeating question exercise, the person who asks a question follows that with thank you. And then ask the question again. Person talks, thank you, ask the question again. And, and, um, and each time you get asked a question, it kind of like stretches you or opens you to new possibility. Like, like oh, oh, you know, you, you're surprised yourself what comes up, you know. And, and um, yes? Sorry? I, I can't hear you. Yes, you, 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 well, yes, you can go, you can respond with enough, enough that you say what it is, and then uh, the person says thank you, the person asks again, and you can bring it up again. You can, if what comes up for you is to take it to a new level, a different level, and, oh, that belief was supported by that belief or something. It goes, yeah, yeah, whatever comes up. So that's what's, what's interesting about this is the, the surprise of what comes up because you keep being asked the same question. Yes? Yes, and then, and then I'll, I'll do that. I'll explain that afterwards. I don't want to explain too much now. I'll guide you. This is, so why don't you, I'll, I'll guide you through this as well. So again, over again. So why don't you f- find someone to sit with and when you're all sitting quietly, then I'll, I'll explain what's next. And then I'll explain it a little bit more. And the question is, um, what views do you want to support your life with? What views do you want to support your life with? 
And um, these could be views you already have, you just want them to su- continue to support you. They could be views that maybe are not so pre- you know, often around, but you'd like to them to be more prevalent in your life. Um, so it could be things you already do, just, re- just reporting it, or things that you'd like that you had, or you'd like them to be more prevalent. So what to use would you like to support your life with? Is that? Staying, staying where you're at. So just staying where you're at. So the, the thank you for doing that. Uh, I uh, you know, don't know really how it was like for you, but it was very tender in here. And I kind of, as a kind of witnessing it from my position that um, it felt it was very, very nice to feel that caring, the tenderness, the sincerity of what I felt the conversations were about. So I hope that it was okay for you. Thank you. Uh, I thought it might be nice to, at this point to take a little break and maybe uh, if we can do a 10 minute break, come back at about, you know, three o'clock, um, that would be nice if we had, and we had come back for the last half an hour and at that point, we'll a little bit debrief on what just happened. So. Lydia, you can come here. You can come here. I think if it, so maybe move back a little bit for Amy to fit in there. Yeah, maybe a little bit further back for... Good. Great. So, <clears throat> so um, the, as the tenth of the ten skillful actions is uh, having right view. So after that exercise, you probably never forget that that uh, views, our philosophies of life, have some role to play in our ethics and walking the Buddhist path and, and living a wise life. And uh, so it's um, something to consider. What was it like to do that exercise for some of you? What's therapy about just listing the views? It was digging deeper than I had ever expected. I would hope that Buddhism goes as deep as you can. Yeah, there was just something that felt different that made me go, oh, Oh. this is, you know, really digging in. So I don't know what happened, but uh, in, in principle it's fine to be sad because we go deeper and look at all this and see it. The same thing that usually happens when we do repeating questions, the urge to uh, comment or share, because 
so many of the things said resonate with me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was um, <clears throat> very um, releasing and healing for me to um, write down and name exactly um, what uh, you know what was what was coming up the the pain the fear the doubt uh-huh. and then it was just such a release and joy. <laughs> And I could see it on both of our faces, yeah. <laughs> my partner and I. You know, we went from this pain and <laughs> doubt and fear to this joy. Yeah. And we, I just felt so, I felt freedom, deep, mm. deep freedom. And it was, it was just a wonderful. And, it, and did the two go together? Was it useful to first do the difficult thing and then oh, yeah. that opened up the possibility? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, needed to clean it out before. <laughs> it's like you need to have the empty hands before you can receive the gift. About in the middle of the first half, I kept having these visions of picnics and things that we did as a family coming in, and I had to squelch them yeah. and and uh, keep coming up with the bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you were just ahead of the. You were just ahead of the, the instructions, maybe. <laughs> I think that's significant. I, I, you know, maybe you had to push them, put them aside to answer the question. But the fact that those images came up, I see as part of the process. Just want to speak to the power of. Um, Working and speaking with a witness in those topics in particular. Yeah. It really um, was a very effective way of, of helping to crystallize and embody some of what we were talking about today. I felt the, the power of like right longing because I... When I began to talk about oh, uh, I'd lo- I l- to believe myself as a ki- in myself as a kind person, or believe in myself as you know um, a wonderful mother, an intuitive mother, to believe in myself as a you know a, a, just a generous at heart kind of person. It's not like I do believe in myself as that person, but I felt like the longing wasn't creating craving. It just felt like right to long for that for myself. Yeah. Oh, so it didn't it. seem to be creating a painful absence or some stretch of you know, what will never be. But it did feel right then to be right longing. Mm, nice. So in other words, to have a view that's positive and generous towards yourself. Um, to long for that view. Because I, yeah, don't you're t- think I know you're talking about longing, but you're longing for a view where yeah. you see yourself in a positive, yes, I good am. way. Yeah. yeah. So you can have confidence in yourself and 
Um, there's no, yeah, there's uh, no reason not to. Yeah. Good, thank you. I loved what you just said. Um, it occurred to me that maybe uh, you've mentioned once before that there could be a ninefold path and maybe right longing. Would be <laughs> one of them. I found myself being surprised by when I think of right views, I think of mainly philosophy attitudes that you get from the Buddhist scriptures that the idea there's no afterlife is a wrong view and this is a wrong view and that's a wrong view. Um, and that, those sorts of things did not come up at all. Uh, there were it was a whole long string of viewlets, I'm tempted to say, on very particular things, both positive and negative. Mm. And that was kind of a surprise. I thought it would be more general sort of propositions for life that help or hinder, but uh-huh. these were very specific. Great. And I, I was fortunate to be talking with a person uh, whose presence was very helpful. Mm, nice. Thank you. So, so view, viewlets. <laughs> I just um, feel such a, a deep sense of gratitude. Um, there is nowhere else to be able to do this mm-hmm. in such an honest way and feel safe. I felt totally safe and um, safe with the person and safe in myself to mm-hmm. reveal whatever was going to come up. Right. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, and so thank much. everyone, because we kind of built the little community over the course of the day that allowed us to do this. It wouldn't have made sense to do it first thing in the morning. Thank you. Mary. Uh, I don't know where I am on this path, but I know I'm on it. And I just love these Dharma practice days. They remind me I'm on the path, and they point me in the right direction, I hope, I think, so that I can go another step or so. So uh, I'll see you in uh, September, is it, or something? (laughs) I'll be back. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the last one in the series. It says on the calendar and in the newsletter that we have one more meeting in June. But that's not happening because I double scheduled myself. So, so this, that's why we're finishing with right view today because I had a wrong view some months ago. <laughs> so, so um, you know, if you look at take this idea of going from coarse to to um, more subtle, uh, you know, killing is pretty coarse. You know, it's. Very few of you are involved with that. I think none of you probably kill people, but you know maybe your insects at home, your ants or something. But you know it's still something. And then as we move along, it, um, uh, these and explore these and train ourselves and develop ourselves and, and consider these in more subtle ways and not just the obvious ways. It is a training. Uh, each of these steps—not killing, not stealing, not sexual misconduct, not lying—they're all kind of. Um, um, uh, they're all trainings, and they become closer and closer and closer into us. Killing people do very rarely. Stealing maybe they do a little bit more often. <laughs> so 
sexual misconduct happens a little bit more often still. And, um, and then lying happens a little more often still. And then, you know, the other kinds of speech. A little more. And, you know, having uh, avarice and, and greed and, and ill will, I think that's even more common. And then right view maybe might be the most common. Uh, I mean, wrong, uh, wrong view. And so then, um, but as, you, as we train in these, as we can cons- take these seriously as something to consider and to work with and develop and explore, uh, what happens is our mindfulness develops, our, our empathy develops, a variety of good qualities develop, and a greater understanding develops as we go along. And so by the time we get to the tenth one, the idea of wrong and right view makes more and more sense. That there is some views, we understand them, we have enough background to look back and say, oh, those are the views that supported that, and, and now there's other right views that support a path of practice and the training and moving in a different direction. And so this particular list ends with right view. Right view is the beginning of the Eightfold Path. And there is a tradition in Buddhism that ethics is the foundation for the, everything's going to happen in the path. So it kind of, you know, you don't, you, if you push these lists too much, they start collapsing a little bit. But, but I think it's kind of, I, I don't know if it was intended this way, but I think it's very nice that this list ends with right view and then now Eightfold Path, which is a more subtle, uh, uh, I don't know subtle, but it's one that's more directly uh, related to liberation, walking a path of liberation. And um, rather than just living wisely, this is now we're talking about living uh, in a liberating way. And so that begins with right view, where this one lets, uh, leaves off. So, um, so some of you might want, if you want to follow up on this, you could follow up by, in September, we'll have this, uh, we're not, it won't be the theme for the Dharma Practice Day, but every year now the plan at IMC is to have this Eightfold Path uh, program, a mentoring program. Some of you have done it. And so you, could p- and you can pick up that and do the Eightfold Path next year with a mentor and a little group. Uh, next year, the Dharma Practice Series. Right now, I'm thinking that this, the theme would be the Brahma Viharas. And uh, we would do eight months on the, on the you know, uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And uh, I think we do two months on each. So I, I thought, and do meditations on them. And we, we do probably do a little more meditation than we do on these regular Dharma Practice Days because they're kind of meant to, partly to be uh, meditative practices. Um, so we're coming now to the end of this year with exploring mindfulness approach, mindful approach to ethics. So based on today or based on anything in this year, anything, do you have any questions or concerns or anything that in 15 minutes can wrap it all up, (laughs) (laughs) wrap ethics up? Yes. Yeah. Probably in the schedule, but your eightfold um, path that's coming up in September uh, would be uh, like on Fridays or no? Uh, the eightfold path program, the way it uh, we, we haven't scheduled it exactly yet towards September October. It's usually um, a two-hour program once a month, where some of the uh, longtime practitioners here our mentors for the program would lead that to our program introducing the factor for the month and then you're given um, readings and different things to engage with for on your own to explore it on your own more and then you once a month you would meet with a mentor you'd be assigned a mentor and for an hour and you get to talk about your relationship to the Eightfold Path 
Right. It's been a very nice program. We've done it two years now in a row. And, and so there'll be more information about that in the next newsletter. Carla? I've thought a lot about these 10 steps on my own as well as today. And my question is, if it is possible to go through life leaving as small a negative footprint as possible, or it is possible to go through life doing as much good as possible, recognizing that the negative footprint is going to be larger than if I were to focus just on making the smallest negative footprint. Oh, I see. You mean, meaning, meaning that uh, you might do more good in the world if you allow yourself to do more harm as well. <laughs> I would never have put it that way. <laughs> it's a matter of focus and concentration. If my focus is on never stepping on an ant, yeah. that's always the picture I have in my mind. If yeah. my focus is on recycling all the time and growing my own food and you know that minimizing my footprint right yeah. walking everywhere and bicycling everywhere i cannot if i were to walk and bicycle everywhere i could not do the right. good that i'm right. doing exactly it's the truth and for all, so all i am burning gasoline way more than if i was trying to minimize my footprint yeah so that i think that what you're raising is a very important issue the idea of uh do we, do we balance the, the harm and the good that we do? Is it, does it make sense to do some kind of equation like that? Are we supposed to live a life that just minimize, 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 and then everyone's everyone just sitting in their room watching TV? <laughs> or, or, or dying. Better do that. You better just die. <laughs> Knitting. Knitting. <laughs> but then you know, those, those poor sheep. Yeah. So I, I think that that's a, quite a valid question. Uh, Concerned, what you raise, and uh, I think all of us has to balance that, find a balance with that, because um, you know I, have to, I do that too. I drive too, so there is certainly harm caused, and um, can the harm be mitigated? And does it, is it mitigated by doing good elsewhere, or is it mitigated by uh, buying carbon offsets, for example? You know, what's the best way of you know of mitigating the harm? You know, or that you cause, and um, I think that's an individual question. Answer. I don't. I don't have a generic answer for you or for anybody. For myself, even, I think each person has to negotiate that well, but on their own. Uh, what's very meaningful for me is that people ask these questions, kinds of questions that you're asking, to have that kind of concern, that kind of ethics, and that kind of care, to be interested in that and find the right balance, find your way with that. I think is uh, um, then I have hope if people are engaging the question. The fact that I don't know, if I, you know, how to exactly come to an answer for how to answer for someone. Does Buddhism have any guidance on that question? I think Buddhism uh, is, uh, I think, uh, unequ- I mean, traditionally the early Buddhism, the Buddha, unequivoc- unequivocal about the importance of not having an intention to cause harm. Not not to, not not having an, an intention to cause harm. Whether in the course of living our life we inadvertently do cause harm, um, that is something we have to negotiate and find our way with. And that might be a little bit more nuanced. But uh, absolutely the intention to cause harm should not be uh, followed through on. 
I don't really have a question so much as a comment, which is um, how much I appreciate you introducing these different facets of ethics as an exploration that we can undertake. It almost um, has helped me embody a little bit more of a dance with it. Mm, nice. And, Very um, nice. In conversation with a lot of people outside of this room oh, as nice. well. Yes. So. So then I'll, I'll end with one last little teaching. So it's kind of repeating what I said earlier, but it's worth saying. I would, I would like to leave this with you. Is that um, um, ethics, the precepts, the Eightfold Path, all these, all the lists, numbers of good qualities and all these things, um, that the, the, the path is supposed to is, uh, is a path that walks us or moves us in the direction that we become these things rather than something we have to do. So rather than being ethical, um, we become ethical rather than needing to look up the list. You know, what do I do now? And am I, am I, am I, oh, I'm not supposed to kill. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, we become someone who doesn't harm. We become someone who doesn't lie. It just becomes second nature. It becomes what just feels like that's what wants to happen as opposed to needing to uh, uh, practice to do that or struggle to do that or question whether what to do or something like that. The idea is to become these things. And um, so like the Eightfold Path, become the Eightfold Path. So another, and I say in a different way, let this become our character as opposed to a practice that we import and take on. It becomes a character of who we are and what we do in the world. And I think that's a great gift that we can give the world is to be people who have that level of goodness that we meet the world with and share share our our lives with. So thank you. And uh, as we come to the end now, um, I think it would be nice to go around and everyone say their names. So maybe you can start here with the mic. Uh, Carrie. Dawn, Marie, Claudine, Danielle, Dorothée, Kevin, Anne, Noel, Carla, Jenny, Jen, Amy. Mary, Kate, Steve, Ellen, and thank you very much. This has been a great uh, series, and thanks to all my fellow travelers. Marcy, Catherine, Sasha, Lydia, and I'm Gil. So, so um, and then uh, it's nice if uh, we have about seven people who can stay behind and do some of the tidying up. Uh, you know, we have to clean the bathrooms, four bathrooms, well, three bathrooms and downstairs and then uh, the kitchen and maybe vacuum the floor here and um, 
do the, empty the trash. We have some volunteers who can help with those things. It takes about 10 minutes or so. So one, two, three, four, five, six, it's prob- seven, it's great, probably enough. So why don't you check with uh, Don so that you're not all going to the same bathroom. It's a little coordinated. And my hope, uh, with the dedication of merit to end this, my hope is that whatever benefit that has come from this year of series and today, that uh, it translates one way or the other, that uh, the goodness of this gets carried into the world and uh, lightens the load of other people, helps other people feel more at peace, more uh, happy, more free. May all beings be happy and free. Thank you.